Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called A Spirituality of Food, the All-Sufficient Metaphor for Power. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, August 29th, 2010. The books about food just keep coming with Michael Pollan of Berkeley leading the way. In The Omnivore's Dilemma, 2006, Pollan explored our national eating disorder by tracking food from its origin all the way to our dinner plates. Then, in 2008, his book, In Defense of Food, offered a seven-word mantra with three rules. Eat food, not too much, mainly plants. And more recently, his tiny treatise from 2009, Food Rules, suggested 64 one-page guidelines to healthier and happier eating. Poland's books are only partly about nutrition. He points us to a bigger picture that includes not only our appetites, but our consciences. Food ecology is important, but so is a food ethic. You might say there's more to food than buying organic, joining the slow food movement, going vegan, or bicycling to your farmer's market with your denim bag. Food is about more than nutrition. Where you eat, what you eat, how much or how little you eat, when you eat, and who you eat it with all say something about your identity in the community you keep. In a review of the book Feast, A History of Grand Eating, Ingrid Rowland notes how throughout history food has often been what she calls the all-sufficient metaphor for power. That, in fact, is a distinctly biblical idea. Food plays a conspicuous role in the biblical narratives Jews celebrate liberation from Egypt with a Passover meal. Many of their 613 mitzvot or commandments deal with dietary restrictions. John says that Jesus' first miracle was to turn water into wine at a wedding party in Cana in Galilee. And not only mere wine, but the best wine. In the Gospels we read about the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, and in eternity the Great Supper, all signs that signify spiritual realities that transcend their physical nature. There are stories about feeding the multitudes, whether it's okay to eat with dirty utensils, food production and farming, arguments about whether to abstain from food, which foods are ritually clean or unclean and why, whether a believer in Paul's day could eat meat that had been sacrificed to pagan idols and then afterwards sold in the local marketplace, and then the poor begging crumbs from the rich. Luke's gospel for this week is only one of several stories that Jesus told in which he used food as a metaphor for a sort of power that could build or destroy human community. Jesus often ate with fringe people, the riffraff, 
so much so that his detractors disparaged him as a glutton and a drunkard. For the, for the religiously scrupulous person of that day, to eat with a so-called dirty person defiled you. It made you impure before both God and humanity. But Jesus also ate with these very same religiously zealous and socially powerful people. That's where the gospel for this week finds him. Jesus was eating dinner with a prominent Pharisee when he noticed something about both the guests and then something about the hosts. Luke chapter 14, 7 to 14. The guests at the party clamored for places of honor at the table. To insinuate ourselves into the places of importance, to wheedle a prestigious invitation, to be seen at the right eatery with the right people, all these behaviors are what we're inclined to do. It's entirely human. When I was in Oxford in the fall of, of fall of 2002, I regularly attended the beautiful church service called Evensong. On my first night at Maudlin College Chapel, founded in 1448, I learned a very important lesson. Do not, under any circumstances, even think about sitting in the back row reserved for the professors. Those are prestigious seats for important people. And never mind that the church was empty except for the boys' choir and a few tourists like me. Whether it's sitting in the skybox at the football game or at courtside at the basketball game, we confuse a powerful social location with an authentic personal identity. Just as school children long to demonstrate through their bag lunch that they are okay, adults want to demonstrate by their social location at a table that they are not only okay, but important and powerful. And so Jesus warned the guests at the dinner, Be careful where you sit. It might reveal more about yourself than you would care to know. Jesus then turned from the guests to the hosts and commented on what we might call the law of reciprocity. When you throw a dinner party, you tend to invite people whom you most enjoy, those whose presence in your house might flatter you. In fact, said Jesus, there's a decent chance these people will reciprocate and invite you to their own party, which is exactly what you might hope for. But to the hosts, Jesus also turned the table. He replaced those whom we would most likely invite, your friends, brothers, or relatives, or your rich neighbors, with those whom we would least likely invite, the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Jesus warned the hosts, be careful about your invitation list. Like your seating preferences, it also says something about your deepest identity. Jesus thus warned both the guests and the hosts, Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Luke 14:11. Commenting on this passage from Luke, Will Willimon, former professor and dean of the chapel at Duke University for almost 30 years, observed, 
There's a warning here about the advent of a kingdom where those who are full and content and on top get dislodged. I was reminded of Luke's parable when I was in Uganda in 2004. In a village outside of Tororo, our group was feeded by a duo who between the two of them lived the life of all four people that Jesus mentioned. They were both poor, one was blind, and the other person was lame and crippled. But they sang to us originally in newly composed songs of appreciation, complete with our individual names, and through the best party with the best food they had. In this instance, as is also the case in the Gospels, food was a metaphor not of power, envy, and social posturing, but of joyful celebration of the God who exalts the humble and humbles the exalted. When my friend's daughter, Lisa, got married, they wanted to invite their entire church, but budgetary constraints prohibited that. Instead, after the service, they had the local police block off the main street in downtown Waco, Texas. Guests danced in the streets and enjoyed the refreshments from a Baskin-Robbins ice cream cart. The gazebo in the, co in the concrete part next to the theater sheltered the wedding cake. Lisa's husband, Chris, had made friends with a number of homeless men who lived under a bridge. As a pastor, Chris had employed these men for odd jobs at his church. One man, Coyote, the leader of his homeless friends, came to the wedding in his usual attire of jeans with holes in the knees, a scraggly beard, unwashed hair. He organized his friends to clean up the streets after the wedding then sat on the curb with a big smile and smoked a cigar. Another guest was Lisa's next-door African-American neighbor. The little girl, little girl loved to spend time with Lisa and really wanted to come to her wedding. So the mother, the daughter, and the grandfather all came. The 70-year-old grandfather was soon the center of attraction as he went out onto the street and danced to the music. Soon the college girls vied to dance with him. As passers-by strolled by and inquired about what was happening, they too were invited to the wedding. There were guests dressed in their nicest clothes alongside guests who wouldn't feel at home at formal occasions. However they dressed, on this occasion every person felt welcomed as an honored guest just as God himself welcomes us to himself and invites us to welcome each other. And for further reflection, consider the epistle for this week, Hebrews 13, verse 2. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. And for further reflection, see the two books by Sarah Miles, Take This Bread, from 2007, and then from 2010, Jesus Freak, Feeding, Healing, Raising the Dead. For books this week, I review Amnesty International Report 
2010. The State of the World's Human Rights. London, Amnesty International Publications, 2010. 403 pages. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, reads Proverbs 31.8, for the rights of all who are destitute. That's what the annual reports from Amnesty International do. The current report covers the year 2009. A brief forward by Amnesty's Interim Secretary General, Claudio Cordon, gives an overview of notable achievements and stubborn obstacles for human rights for all people. Cordon's forward is followed by five regional overviews, each about ten pages long. Africa, the Americas, Asia-Pacific, Europe, Europe and Central Asia, and finally the Middle East and North Africa. The bulk of the report then gives two-page summaries of 159 countries. In 2009, a democratically elected former head of state was sent to prison for 25 years for crimes against humanity, Alberto Fujimori of Peru, while another sitting head of state was named in an arrest warrant for war crimes and crimes against humanity, Omar al-Bashir of Sudan. Accountability, rather than impunity, is the goal. But two major obstacles continually thwart this goal, says Cordon. First, a handful of powerful states place themselves outside and above the law. Although 110 states ratified the Rome Statute to the International Criminal Court by the end of 2009, only 12 of the G20 countries had done so. And second, States manipulate the law for political expedience and shield their allies from scrutiny, as when the African Union refused to cooperate with the charges against their fellow African Bashir. A report of this sort necessarily sacrifices deep analysis of complex issues in favor of breadth of coverage. But the report pulls no punches and plays no favorites. It's comprehensive in its notion of human rights, whether civil, economic, social, political, cultural, or religious. I especially appreciated the mention of many small and unknown atrocities that never make the news, along with the emphasis that civilians bear the brunt of human rights abuses. This point is underscored by a dozen or so powerful photographs interspersed throughout the text, wooden shacks built on the rubble of demolished homes in Egypt, women and children escaping conflict in northwest Pakistan, pregnant women awaiting health care in Sierra Leone, and police brutality against demonstrators in Honduras. The report also notes that not only governments and paramilitary groups, but also global businesses wield immense power over people's lives with very little accountability. All human beings deserve all human rights. But the end of public rape, repression of dissent, forcible expulsions and returns, renditions, torture, and the like 
that will come only to the extent that we emphasize our own responsibilities to secure those rights. Human rights begin with the end of apathy and indifference. When, in the words of Proverbs 31.8, we speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. The Amnesty International Report 2010 For film this week, I review Afghan Star, a film obviously from Afghanistan. During the decades of oppression under the Taliban, music and dancing were banned as immoral. But this fascinating documentary records the resurgence of pop culture in Afghanistan by looking at one single television show. And it's not just any television show. It's a carbon copy of American Idol called Afghan Star that's produced by Tolo TV. And just like in the West, the show is a cultural phenomenon. With over 11 million people, a third of the country, casting their votes by cell phone for their favorite performers. Director Havan Marking takes us behind the scenes of the television production into the dilapidated halls for auditions in a half dozen cities all over the country, and then onto the streets for interviews with ordinary people about the controversial but popular show. But in this show, art is politics. It is fascinating to see how one contestant in particular risked her life by what she did on stage. Most of the film follows four finalists, two men and, shockingly, two women, three of whom are from different tribes. And so pop cultural might even be a force for national unity. The film is in Afghani, with English subtitles. And finally this week, in keeping with the Lucan Gospel emphasis on food, we've posted a poem by Reginald Heber, Bread of the World in Mercy Broken. It's a Eucharistic hymn. Reginald Heber lived from 1783 to 1826. Bread of the world in mercy broken, wine of the soul in mercy shed, by whom the words of life were spoken, and in whose death our sins are dead. Look on the heart by sorrow broken, look on the tears by sinners shed, and be thy feast to us the token that by thy grace our souls are fed. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for August 29th, 2010. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.